those who are permitted to see large additions to the church will find this parable of the wedding garment to be singularly appropriate and timely. Whenever there is a revival and many are brought to Christ, it seems inevitable that at the same time a proportion of unworthy persons should enter the church. However diligent may be the oversight, there will be pretenders creeping in unawares who have no true part or lot in the matter, and hence, when the preacher is most earnest for the ingathering of souls to Christ, he needs to couple therewith a holy jealousy, lest those who come forward to make a profession of faith should be moved by carnal motives and should not really have given their hearts to God. There are a few men who are better qualified to make that assessment than Charles Spurgeon. He makes it right at the beginning of this week's featured sermon on the wedding garment from Matthew 22:11 to 14 And when the king came in to see the guests, he saw there a man which had not on a wedding garment, and he saith unto him, Friend, how camest thou in hither, not having a wedding garment? And he was speechless. Then said the king to the servants, Bind him hand and foot, and take him away, and cast him into outer darkness. There shall be weeping and gnashing of teeth, for many are called, but few are chosen. This sermon was preached on the 19th of February, a Lord's Day morning in 1871. It shows the uh, the stark polarity of Spurgeon's biblical understanding in terms of life and death and heaven and hell. It's also very practical because he's conscious that he's preaching to a huge congregation and he's uh, conscious too that among that congregation gathered in during a time of relatively religious excitement that there will be those who've simply drifted in, who imagine themselves safe when they are not. And so his warning is that it is most needful in times of religious excitement to remind men that godliness does not consist in profession, that is, an outward testimony, but must be proved by inward vitality and outward holiness. Everything will have to be tested by a heart-searching God, and if, when he comes to search us, we are found wanting, we shall be expelled even from the marriage feast itself, for there is a way to hell from the very gates of heaven. Just a quote there right at the end from uh, right from the end of John Bunyan's Pilgrim's Progress. Yeah, first part at least. In a word, says Spurgeon, it is well for all men to be reminded that the enemies of the great king are not only outside the visible church, but they are even in it. While a part refuse to come to the wedding of his son, Others press into the banquet and are still his foes. So he's dealing primarily now with the second element, the, the last episode in this parable of the wedding feast, dealing with this wedding garment. He's already addressed the fact in another sermon, if I remember correctly, that uh, there are those who refuse to come. Now he's got someone who thinks they've come, has come into the, the banquet, but is still an enemy of God. And that's where he begins in this a uh, series of five headings that constitute the sermon. An enemy at the feast, the king at the feast, the king who becomes the judge at the feast, therefore the enemy becomes the criminal at the feast, who is swiftly removed by the executioner at the feast. And uh, this sermon proceeds in that five-part structure, really in ever-tightening circles. The first is the longest, and then they get tighter and tighter as they move down until the last really drives home
the point that the preacher is trying to make. The first heading then is that we see in the text an enemy at the feast. He came in appearance, but he did not come in heart. The banquet was intended for the honour of the son, but this man did not mean it to be so. He was happy enough with the external privileges, but he never really bowed the knee to the, the king in his kingdom. And Spurgeon asks, are there not crowds of people whose union to the church is, like this man's in the parable, nothing better than an insult to God? Custom sways them, and not sincere faith. They have no regard to the great head of the church, or to the heart-searching God. They treat church membership as a trifle, and have no tenderness of heart touching the matter. They say, in effect, the table of the Lord is contemptible. Then quoting Jude, spots are they in our feasts, feeding themselves without fear. Now Spurgeon steps back a touch at this point, having brought us uh, face to face with this uh, seeming friend but real foe, a man who's uh, willing to move among the, the guests at the feast without ever really having the same heart attitude as them. And he asks the question, what is this wedding garment? And says that it's a, a question that has been often uh, raised but need not be curiously pried into. His uh, conclusion is that uh, the wedding garment represents anything indispensable to a Christian, but which the unrenewed heart is not willing to accept. Anything which the Lord ordains to be a necessary attendant of salvation against which selfishness rebels. Hence it may be said to be Christ's righteousness imputed to us. Uh, that's the, uh, the essence of it in Spurgeon's uh, understanding. Uh, but he says this is what adorns the saints in heaven. And then going on from there, it's clear that the figure is also sometimes applied to Christians in reference to their personal character. So holiness is always present in those who are loyal guests of the great king, for without holiness no man shall see the Lord. Too many professors, and again that language here means those who make an open testimony but without a heart attachment, too many professors pacify themselves with the idea that they possess imputed righteousness while they are indifferent to the sanctifying work of the Spirit. They refuse to put on the garment of obedience. They reject the white linen, which is the righteousness of saints. They thus reveal their self-will, their enmity to God, and their non-submission to his Son. So they can talk about religion, but they are rebels at heart. They have not on that wedding garment. No man, he insists, ever had the imputed righteousness of Christ without receiving at the same time a measure of the righteousness wrought in us by the Holy Ghost. Justification by faith is not contrary to the production of good works. God forbid. The faith by which we are justified is the faith which produces holiness, and no man is justified by faith which does not also sanctify him and deliver him from the love of sin. So the wedding garment in this context is the test of loyalty to those who come to the marriage feast, the mode by which rebellion is avowed and loyalty made apparent. What is then the sin of this man who's an enemy of God? Well, he willfully prefers himself to God, his heart being full of enmity and pride. He is despising the gifts of grace, he is scorning the rule of love, and stands a defiant rebel even at the very banquet of mercy which is king, had spread. 
So first of all, he comes in without the wedding garment, and it's a grave mistake for any person to imagine that he can be in the church of God to his own advantage without a renewed heart, unless he means what he declares and sincerely loves the rule under which he professes to put himself. But then this enemy aggravates that initial sin because after he's come unlawfully into the feast, he still continues there without the wedding robe. It doesn't seem to bother him at all that he doesn't have the garment that marks him out as a loyal subject of the king. Only when the king comes in and says, take him away, has this insolent rebel any idea of leaving. And so, says Spurgeon, and this is where the compassion as well as the honesty begins to bleed out. Oh, my dear hearers, if you have already perpetrated the sin of union with the visible church of God without having the prerequisites, without being indeed submissive to God in heart and desirous to honour Christ, I entreat you, seek what is wanted, that is what is lacking. Seek faith in God, seek a new heart, seek holiness of life, seek to become a loyal subject of the King, and be not content until you have these things, for the King will soon come in. He gives you time as yet. May he also give you grace to see to it that, being now where you ought never to have been, you may yet make your position a right one by obtaining that which will justify you in remaining where you are. So he says, if if you're in the position that this man was in, of having come in, then understand that if you lack this wedding garment, now is the moment to claim it. This persistence then this man retained, though he probably knew the fate of those who had refused to come. He understands that those who were were, were adamant that they had no intent of joining in the first place, have been brought down by the king's judgments, and yet that doesn't seem to bother him. Spurgeon asks, is there anybody here who's like that? The tendency will be for those who are not so to begin to condemn themselves. He says there's a, there's a sensitive spirit that might ask, is it me? Is it me? And he says, you who are most assuredly right will probably be suspicious that you are not while you who are insincere and have never submitted yourselves to the will of God will probably say, what does it matter? I'm doing as well as others. I give as much. I attend the means as much. Surely there can be no cause for concern in me. So uh, Spurgeon again, a nice pastoral touch there for those who uh, may be quaking and shaking because of these charges that he's bringing against potential hypocrites. He's saying, if you're deeply concerned about this possibility, it's actually a good indication that you have a sensitive heart. Then he moves on to the next point. Remember, that's the, the, the most substantial, and he's building then upon each layer as he moves, because the king is at the feast. He came in to see the guests. And again, Spurgeon immediately uh, brings this into uh, his immediate situation. What would church fellowship be if it had not the fellowship of God with it? To sit with my dear brothers and rejoice in their love is exceedingly delightful. But the best wine is fellowship with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. And so the king comes in, and, and this is the high point of the feast. And he comes in and he sees the guests and they see him. It is a moment of mutual revelation, delightful to his true subjects. We do desire, says the preacher, to abide forever beneath the divine inspection, for it is an inspection of unbounded love. He sees our faults, it is to remove them. He notes our imperfections, it is to cleanse them away. Behold me, O great king, 
and lift up thine eyes upon me, accepting me in the beloved. I do delight in the way that Spurgeon throws in these uh, brief ejaculatory prayers into his sermons. He's speaking to God openly sometimes, even as he speaks to men. This then is the crowning point of the banquet. Everybody is in their place. They didn't see him before they'd entered his halls, and now he comes in. You and I see nothing of God by way of communion with him, says Spurgeon, until we've been brought in by the message of mercy to the marriage feast of the gospel. And here we are now at the banquet of mercy, even daring to look at the king of kings. Spurgeon points out again a little bit of his uh, pastoral emphasis in the light of that. Uh, remember that introduction that this is about the, uh, the seasons of blessing, that the king does have special times for drawing near. He's not always in the festal chamber. The means of grace are abiding, but the grace of the means will come and go according to the sovereign good pleasure of our God. And so, he says, an ungodly man may lie down in the church of God with the lambs of the flock, and nothing may lead you to suspect his true character. But when the time comes for him to make profit by sin, or to get pleasure by sin, or to escape from persecution by sin, then you find out what he is. These providences are the king's coming in to scrutinize the guests, God drawing near. Changes in the conditions of the church, changes in the condition of the individual, all sorts of providential events go to make up the great sieve by which the wheat and the chaff are separated. This end is a great and most solemn moment when the king, looking over the church, decides that such and such a hypocrite has had space enough for repentance and time enough for mischief and must now be summoned to the dread tribunal by death. The time when the king comes in to see his guest, says Spurgeon, is not the last judgment, for that's the coming of the son and not of the father. So again, he's so very careful here. And you might say he's... Uh, maybe playing a little fast and loose with the parable, he's reading too much into the details, that that may be so strictly speaking. But there's also real pastoral experience and wisdom here so that he's taking these details and he's making them useful for the searching of our souls. The king's presence then is known to believers in the joy which they feel when God draws near, but it's made known to hypocrites by his cutting them off and appointing them their portion in eternal woe. If, however, here's the connection again, there is any one time when we may be quite sure that the king comes in to see the guests, it is after large ingatherings from the world. For notice here, when the servants had gathered in guests in large numbers, it was then that the king came in. Now it will be after the time of revival which we're feeling just now, when I hope a great many will be added to the church, that the Lord will search and sift us. If there has been no visitation of the church before for purposes of love or judgment, for they go together, we shall be quite sure to have such a visit from the great Lord himself at this time. Again, a helpful reminder to us. Some of us often pray that God will draw near to his church in a powerful way. And Spurgeon's reminding us that that may not always be the uh, the the most delightful uh, experience that we sometimes imagine it will be, that when God comes in, in the light and heat of his gospel, that that light will perhaps scorch our eyes and that heat will make tender our flesh. Solemnly then, he says, think of the judge at the feast, 
So you've had the enemy at the feast. The king has come at the feast. And now the king, the beloved monarch, the munificent donor of a splendid banquet, upon whom all eyes have feasted as they have looked. For the hypocritical intruder, he becomes the judge. The day of comfort to his saints is also the day of vengeance of our God. He who comes to comfort all that mourn comes at the same time to smite the rebellious with a rod of iron. And again there is this seeing. He saw there a man. What eyes are those of omniscience? God will indeed judge, says the preacher, and does continually judge his church upon this question, the absence of what is absolutely necessary to being a Christian, the absence of honouring the Son and obeying the Father. O soul, if you are a professor of religion and yet do not love Jesus and do not fear the great King of Kings, you lack the wedding robe and what do you hear? The king will see at once that you lack it. Your morality, your generosity, your high-sounding prayers, aye, and even your eloquent discoursings, these cannot conceal from him the fact that your heart is not with him. The one thing needful is to accept loyally the Lord as king. So the king sees the true state of this man, and now he begins to deal with the rebel. He takes him upon his own ground. It's too high a day for the king to use rough speech. The man pretends to be a friend, and the king addresses him as such. He, he comes to him on his own basis, if you like, and says, If you are indeed a friend, how did you come in here? What business do you have here? What could have induced you to come in on this basis? Spurgeon says you can feel his feeling. I dare not dwell upon the topic. The sense of God putting such a question to a man's heart. He pleads that his, the consciences of his hearers may preach the own, their own sermon to themselves. And he says that the man is dealt with about himself. Somebody, again, again just sensitive. Did I hear a whisper in someone's mind? Well, if I am unfit to be a church member, there are a great many others who are in the same condemnation. And Spurgeon says, but what is that to you? See this, see, see to yourself. When the king came in to see the guests, he didn't say to this man, how came yonder persons here without the wedding garment? He's sensitive to the fact that we, we can twist and turn and evade and avoid the pressure of God's word. He says, no, don't you worry about other people. Don't you judge yourself by them. God will deal with you. His dealings were personal with the man alone. How did you come in here not having on the wedding garment? Professor, look to yourself, look to yourself, let your charity begin at home. He talks about their experience as a church. Our beloved brothers associated with me in office have done their best to keep any of you back who have sought membership in whom we could see no fruits corresponding. Spurgeon and his fellow elders were not careless in bringing people into membership. They wanted to see not only the, the root professed, but the fruit evident. We have not then, he says, used our office deceitfully, as in the sight of God we have tried to be neither too severe nor too lax. But for all that, I cannot but know that there are some of you who are not Christians, though you bear the name. Like those of old, you say you are Jews and are not, but rather lie. I'm not now, he says, speaking of any who have fallen into sin and have suffered our rebuke. Again, here's that care in distinguishing between different categories. I'm not talking about those separated from us by excommunication and yet remaining in the congregation. 
I mean others of you whose lives are all that could be desired openly, and yet there is a worm at the heart of your profession. You are not vitally godly. You have a name to live, and you keep that name untarnished as yet, but you are dead. And so he pleads again. If you've never come to Jesus, come now. If you've never sought holiness of life, seek it now. If you've never had the wedding garment, it is yet procurable. Go to him who freely gives it. The Lord will not refuse you. Go today and he will accept you. You see that he's not trying to just drive these people out. He's not just trying to crush them down. He's trying to persuade them that if they're fooling themselves and others, now is the moment to come to Christ. The fourth circle tighter, further down, because the unworthy guest is now exposed as the criminal at the feast. The king's become a judge to him. The question has been personally put to him. He is speechless. Why silent? Surely it was because he was convicted of open, undeniable disloyalty. It's all, it's all brought out now. He has no wedding garment on, and the king knows it, and the king has drawn attention to it. He has refused to acknowledge his duty to God and his obligations to the Son. And he, he could not have chosen a worse place nor a more impertinent method of ventilating his disloyalty than by coming into the wedding feast and refusing the wedding garment that God was only too ready to give to him. And Spurgeon is staggered. Why didn't he burst into tears? Why didn't he confess the wrong? Why didn't he say, my king, I've insulted you, have pity upon me? No, he's too proud and it, his heart won't let him bow the knee. Sin has made him incapable of repentance. He will not have God as his God. And so, though he suffers, he goes on. He will not and he cannot turn. Oh, says Spurgeon, have I anyone here in such a condition of heart that while he's been sinning by making a false profession and knows it, yet he sullen, sullenly refuses to confess his fault? Yield thee, man, yield at once. You can hear the preacher's heart now. Fall at the king's feet at once. Even if you're not a hypocrite, if you have any suspicion that you are, fall down and say, my king, make me sincere. I submit myself to your will. I'm ready to put on the wedding badge. If there's any method by which I can honor the son, I cavil not at it. Let me wear his colors and be known by all men to be truly a lover of the great prince. Again, you see, what is the point of this straight talk? It is that the, the men and women to whom he speaks, being convinced of their sin, may not run from Christ, but run to Christ. And so, fifthly, finally, briefly, that uh, conclusion, the point of the whole, with all the weight of what's gone before pressing down, the king gives place to the executioner. Bind him hand and foot. He was lawless. Make him feel the law. He said, I'm free and I will do as I like. Let him never be free again. Bind him, pinion him, executioner, do your duty, prepare him for death. Alas, says Spurgeon, again, here's the compassion. There are some who are bound and pinioned even before the breath is out of their bodies. He's, he's deeply concerned now for his hearers that they not be sailing under false colours. There's this, this dreadful sentence, take him away. It says it's sometimes executed by the church in her excommunications. Deceivers are taken away from the gospel feast by just discipline, but it's more fully carried out in the hour of death when the man's hope fails him. What will you do if you have no true grace in your hearts 
when you're taken away from the Lord's table, from the baptism in which you gloried, from the doctrines of the gospel which you understood in your head, but which you did not know in your heart. Spurgeon says, There is none in heaven or earth thought more despicable, more fit to be thrown away as rubbish and offal, than a man who had a Christian name, but not the essentials of the Christian's nature. And then the, the, the dreadful sentence, Into outer darkness, where there shall be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Where will he go? Into the darkness so dark that there can be no relief, no glimpse or gleam of light. What will he do there? He will weep and he will gnash his teeth. Not regret, but sullen disappointment, wrath and envy, because he can do no more mischief. Oh, says Spurgeon, this misery of hell is not a misery which God arbitrarily creates. It is the necessary result of sin. It is sin itself come to rightness. The, the characteristics of that dreadful condition are, are simply the, the, the culmination and the expression of what has lain in that man's heart all along. This is the picture of the man who was insolent enough to come into the church without being a Christian and now forever gnashes his teeth against that glorious majesty of heaven which it will never be in his power to injure but which it will always be in his heart to hate. It's a dreadful, dreadful picture and you, you feel Spurgeon's heart pain in speaking it. This depart ye cursed, that love repelling that which is not lovely, justice giving to man what his fallen nature craved. First, he says then, we are sifted by the preaching of the gospel and many will not come. The, the invitation goes out and some utterly reject it. There's one heap of chaff. But next, by the judgment of God in his church, others are found wanting. There is another heap of chaff. When this is done and the two great sieves are used, shall we be found among the wheat. Spurgeon closes by pleading, Do not say, this sermon has nothing to do with me. I never made a profession and I shall go home easy enough. In other words, I'm not a hypocrite. I know I'm not a Christian. Spurgeon says, if you're a robber who was brought before a magistrate and accused of theft and you say you're perfectly innocent and the man before you said he was perfectly innocent but was still convicted and a bragger comes up afterwards and says, well, I, I never pretended to be anything but a thief. I rob anybody I can. I mean to do so. I have no intention of keeping the law. Well, the magistrate would say, I condemned the man who even pretended to something decent. But to you, double punishment. You are evidently incorrigible and your case needs no consideration. So Spurgeon, having dealt mainly with the, the man or woman who is professing faith without having faith, who's pretending Christianity without really being a true Christian, he says, don't imagine the fact that you have no part in such hypocrisy will spare you if you yourself have not heard and heeded the gospel. I pray you, he says, yield yourselves to the Saviour and believe in him, for he that believes and is baptised shall be saved. It really is a, a potent declaration. It really is a, a forceful sermon. It has that excellent simplicity, that progression, again, that logical and scriptural tightness, clinging to the text, stepping through it in stages with this vivid uh, pressing home of the, uh, the realities of pretending to be a Christian, being amongst God's people, but not having that great wedding garment 
at the great feast of God. Well, may the Lord help each one of us to search our own hearts, to make sure that even if we've outwardly responded to the the gospel sifting, we are ready for the sifting of God's presence in the church, that we might be true believers wearing the wedding garment of Christ's righteousness and subsequent holiness and walking in the fear of the Lord so that when God makes himself known, we will be celebrating and rejoicing because the king has come rather than angry and sullen because the king's coming has exposed our sin. Do join us next time. If you want to uh, follow us, you can do so on Twitter at Reading Spurgeon. If uh, you want to sign up at mediagratii.org slash podcasts, you can find this and other podcasts and get a weekly newsletter where the featured sermon will be sent through to you. God willing, next week we look at the pastor's parting blessing, sermon 988. If you're reading with us, it's sermon 983 from the Lord's Day, Sunday the 10th of September through to 989 at the end of that week. Until then, God bless us and may we be faithful to him in all things.